Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to cover verses 12 through 24. Those 13 verses will finish up chapter 1, the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 1. In those verses, Paul talked about God being the God of all comfort. He commiserates with the Corinthians with their troubles, their present distress, and his persecutions in the gospel. And I think the reason he was doing that, he was trying to show how much he had suffered for the Corinthians because they weren't listening to him too good. So, or too well. So now we, Paul starts in chapter 12 defending himself against a particular charge of his critics at Corinth, the so-called super apostles, those who were criticizing his ministry in Corinth. They were saying that Paul said he was coming to see the church at Corinth. He says he loves the church at Corinth that he started, but he's not coming. He says he's going to come, then he doesn't. He's a, he's two-faced. Well, Paul then proceeds now to put an end to that silly speculation, that silly charge. He starts off in verse 12. For this is our confidence. The testimony of our conscience is that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you with God-given sincerity and purity, not by fleshly wisdom wisdom, but by God's grace. And what he's saying here is basically the testimony of our conscience is that we weren't trying to string you along, trying to tell you one thing and then doing another. We originally meant to come see you, but circumstances intervened and we had to not come directly. We had to put off our journey just for a little while, but it's just a modification of our intention because we're still coming to see you. It's just going to take a little bit longer. So we're not two-faced hypocrites. Now, Paul mentions the testimony of his conscience, and generally you think that's a subjective statement and doesn't carry too much weight. I remember I had students in college, they would say, but I tried as hard as I could, and or I didn't mean to cheat, or, you know, things like that. Or, hey, I, I did the best I could. It's a testimony of my conscience, and I paid very little attention to that because I didn't believe them. But in this case, Paul exudes such confidence in his motives that he tells them, hey, my conscience is clear, my friends. And I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that if your conscience is sincerely clear, but it's going to take more than that, and he's going to give them more than that. But he starts out with a subjective testimony of his clear conscience. His conscience was sincere. His conscience was pure. It was God-given sincerity and purity, not by fleshly wisdom. Fleshly wisdom, of course, would refer to worldly wisdom or vain philosophy that Paul had spent so much time criticizing the Corinthians about in the, I think it was the second chapter of 1 Corinthians. Remember, he's speaking to Corinthians who live in Greece, the philosophy capital of the world, and so he just mentions that, hey, it ain't by your philosophers that, I, that I'm doing this, but it's by God's grace. Grace. Now, I said that Paul was going to use more than his conscience to defend himself against these charges. Well, what was the other objective defense that he had against the false charges? Well, it's very simple. The Corinthians had firsthand knowledge of his character because Paul had spent 11 months with them at Corinth, eight, excuse me, 18 months with them at Corinth in Acts chapter 18, that's the, on the founding visit to Corinth. So they couldn't plead ignorance of his integrity. As the NIV study Bible points out, they had seen him for 18 months. How are they going to start saying that Paul was acting with duplicity? They couldn't. We go to verses 13 and 14 in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1. Paul says this, Now we are writing nothing to you other than what you can read and also understand. I hope you will understand completely, as you have partially understood us, that we are your reason for pride, as you are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. 
And when Paul says that we are writing nothing to you other than what you can read and also understand, here's some options as to what he means. Option number one, the Corinthians can understand everything Paul wrote to them because they already know his character. So when Paul says, I'm writing nothing to you other than what you could read and understand, you could read and understand my letter and you know exactly what it means because what else could you believe? Because you know my character. So when you read and understand, you read my letters, you will understand my letters. You will interpret my, interpret my letters, even though they're somewhat harsh. You can interpret my letters on the basis of how that I love you and because I've done so much for you in 18 months. That's reasonable. Here's Jameson Fawcett and Brown's option number two, another speculation of his. He says that Paul is denying that he has written secretly to other Corinthians, secretly and in a different vein than his public letters. So Paul is saying, I am writing nothing to you, another what you can read and understand. What you read is what you get. And I didn't try to pull some slick political move by trying to write to other apostles and tell them something different as I try to re regain control over the Corinthian church. What you see in my letters is what you get. That's an interesting speculation. I really think the first option is better, though, is that, hey, you read and understand and understand my character because you know me. I hope you will understand completely as you have partially understood us. So Paul wants them to go from a partial understanding of him to a complete understanding of him. How is it that they only partially understand? Well, they can have a partial understanding of Paul, or it could mean a part of the Corinthian church understands Paul, but the other church part does not. There are some who are being swayed by these super apostles, critics of Paul, and but there are some who have held Paul held fast to Paul. Remember, there was one faction that says, I am of Paul. And so that faction might have understood Paul, but the rest did not. So you've partially understood us as far as numbers in the church, or it could mean you have partially understood us as far as the truth that we have imparted to you. You only understand part of it. Whichever way it is, Paul is trying to enlighten them. And he says that we are your reason we want you to understand that we, that means Paul, he's using the editorial we, that we are your reason for pride. In other words, you need to be proud of me as your apostle. <laughs> you notice that Paul is very confident in his apostleship. He's a humble guy, but he's not going to take any guff about his authority as an apostle. And he says, you need to be proud of me. I'm proud of you. Now, how in the world he could be proud of the Corinthian church? He said that in the first letter. I don't have the verse in front of him. Even I remember he said, you are our pride. You are our pride. The Corinthians... Listen to what the Corinthians have done. Let's see, they've sucked up the Greek wisdom and rhetoric. They've created factions all through the church. They haven't disciplined a man living with his stepmother. They are suing each other in the secular courts. They are causing weak brothers to stumble because of idol meat. They have made chaos out of their church meetings because people are speaking in tongues and prophesying on top of other people who uh, could not exercise their spiritual gifts. They were completely bamboozled about the resurrection of the dead. They're listening to people, I shouldn't say completely, but they're listening to people who are denying the resurrection of the dead. I mean, they have really screwed up. But Paul says that you, Corinthians, are our reason for pride in the day of our Lord Jesus. Let's assume that the day of the Lord Jesus means when he comes back at the end of time. Paul says, I'm going to be proud of you, Corinthians. He didn't give up on them. And he's also saying, hey, you Corinthians better not give up on me either just because I'm getting some criticism. What does it mean in the day of our Lord Jesus? Most people take that to mean at the second coming, at the end of time. I really don't know why Paul could not have meant eighty seventy. These days of our Lord Jesus are sometimes ambiguous. I'm not going to take a stand one way or the other on that. The point is, when there's some revelation from Jesus, and and Jesus is going to 
pass out the rewards, if you will. <laughs> he's he's going to say, hey, well done, Corinthians, and well done, the Apostle Paul. That's what Paul's hope is. We go now to 1 Corinthians 15 and 16, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Paul says this, I planned with this confidence to come to you first, so you could have a double benefit and to go on to Macedonia with your help. Then come to you again from Macedonia and be given a start by you on my journey to Judea. Now, this question of Paul's plans and his travel plans and his letters is extremely complicated. The, that's the bad news. The good news is, is that most scholars that I've looked at seem to agree on the timeline. So I'm going to take what seems to be the general view. If I make a little minor mistake here and there, I hope you'll give me some grace because some of this is a little bit speculative, but most of it is it can be established. So let me give you my take on it. When Paul says in verse 15, I planned with this confidence to come to you, the confidence that he was innocent in the charges against him, that he was shilly-shallying and, and saying one thing and doing another, that he was a hypocrite and he didn't care about the Corinthians. He says, look, I planned having this confidence, this confidence that you were my pride and joy. I was planning to come to you first so that you could have a double benefit, which I'll talk about later. So I was planning to come to you first. What was the original plan? Well, the original plan was... He was in Ephesus, then he was going to go to Corinth, and then from Corinth he was going to go to Macedonia to collect money for the poor collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Macedonia, of course, is basically Thessalonica and Philippi, Berea. Come back from Macedonia, back to Corinth, visit with them some more, and get let them help him on his way to go to Jerusalem, and then after that he was going to Rome. That was his original plan. Now, this is when Paul was on good terms with them, with the Corinthians. Now, I've got three questions. How was that original plan changed? Why was the original plan changed? And when was it changed to try to break down this complicated problem? All right, how was the original plan changed? Well, Paul does not go straight to Corinth. He originally planned to go to Corinth, as I said, go from Ephesus to Corinth, up to Macedonia, back to Corinth again, and then on to Jerusalem. Well, he just left out that first plan of going from Ephesus to Corinth directly. Instead, he goes from Ephesus to Macedonia. Instead of crossing the Aegean Sea to go to Corinth, he goes northward by land on the west coast of Asia Minor up to Troas and then over the Hellespont into Europe, into Thrace, and down on into Macedonia. So he just skipped. He cut out his first visit to Corinth, and then he was planning, as he was coming down from Macedonia, he was going to then go on down to Corinth and then Jerusalem to Rome. So he kind of took a, a detour. Instead of going overseas, he went up by land, which, of course, would take longer. And so then his critics started criticizing him. So that was how the original plan was changed. Now let's look at our second question. Why was the original plan changed? Well, it was because of bad news from Corinth. Remember, Paul had, before he wrote 1 Corinthians, he had gotten a letter from the Corinthians asking him about certain things about sexual morality and that kind of stuff, about idle meat and, su and such, and about Apollos, how, where's Apollos, that kind of thing. And, and he also had a visit from close household who told, them about, told Paul about all the factions and going on in Corinth. And so Paul, having received that bad news, wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians and, and sent it back to Corinth. Some people say Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus sent it back. Some people say Titus did, whoever sent it the Corinthians got this letter from Corinth. Now, Paul apparently, after having sent that letter, because it was such a harsh letter, he decided, I better follow that up on a, with a personal trip. And so he heads over there to Corinth, and it was he was not received, and so the trip was very painful. So 
That painful trip, plus the bad news from Chloe's household, affected Paul's travel plans. Now, originally Paul had planned to go from Ephesus to Corinth, back to Ephesus, up around Macedonia to Corinth. Well, this quick, painful visit to Corinth was not part of that original plan. And so he just went straight to Corinth from Ephesus and then back to Ephesus again. Not, not, in other words, that was a quick trip. It was not his uh, planned trip to get ready to go back to Jerusalem to get there by Passover. So that trip was so painful, he says, well, you know, I don't th- I'm going to change my original plan. I'm not going to go over there to Corinth, stay with them for a while, then go up to Macedonia to the north and come back to Corinth and go back to Jerusalem. I'm, not, I'm just going to skip that first part of directly going to Corinth. I'm going to go straight up by the land route up through Asia Minor to Troas over the Hellspot into Thrace and down to Macedonia. That's how he changed his plans and, and, that's, and why he changed his plans because that, that painful visit to Corinth made him not want to go there until things had gotten straightened out. You recall, as he changed his plans, he goes up to Troas waiting for Titus to hear Titus report to him about had the Corinthians repented or not. Titus doesn't show up, so Paul crosses the Hellspine. He goes down and meets Titus somewhere in Macedonia, I suspect Philippi, and Titus says, hey, everything's cool. And so then Paul says, okay, now I can go back to Corinth. Now, this painful trip that Paul took to Ephesus is mentioned here in 2 Corinthians 2.1. In fact, I made up my mind about this. I would not come to you on another painful visit. And that painful visit, of course, occurred because of their rejection, the Corinthians' rejection of Paul's advice in the letter of 1 Corinthians and all of their many sins, and because of Paul's concern for the Corinthians. Now, not only did that painful trip occur because of Paul's concern about the Corinthians, but also he wrote another tearful letter or sorrowful letter, because after he went to Corinth and had that painful trip. He came back to Ephesus and he was all upset. He wrote him a tearful letter, a sorrowful letter, which has been lost. We read this in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 and 9. For even if I grieved you with my letter, that's the tearful letter, I do not regret it, even though I did regret it since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a little while. Now I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. So, Let's now fit in visits and letters in a, in a chronological time scheme. I've already done this in the last audio. I'll do it again here. I'm using information from a website called biblical.com. And like I say, most people seem to agree with this general time scheme here. All right, there was four letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. The first letter was the letter referred to in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. That's the so-called previous letter I previously wrote to you. It's good for men not to commit, it's good for you not to commit sexual immorality and so forth. That was the previous letter. And then Paul, at some point, probably in response to that previous letter, he gets a report back from Chloe's household and also from a letter. And he responds to that, that oral report and the letter from the Corinthians. He responds to that with the book of 1 Corinthians. He sends that to them. He then, after that, makes the painful visit because he's worried about the the effect of his 1 Corinthian letter to the Corinthians. He's worried about the effect. So he has a painful visit to them. That doesn't work out. So he comes back to Ephesus and he writes the third letter, the severe letter, which I've just mentioned in 2 Corinthians 2.1. Oh, excuse me. I just finished it uh, reading it in 2 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9. 
So that's the third letter. And then he takes off to up to Troas, over to Macedonia, waiting for Titus. Titus comes back, gives him the good news, and Paul says, hot dog, you've repented. So he writes 2 Corinthians, which is where we are now. So with that overall scheme, let me just read to you from this biblical.com website starting. Well, let me just read read the narrative to get to put these four letters in sequence. After writing 1 Corinthians, Paul continued his ministry at Ephesus until he heard that his letter had not completely accomplished its purpose. A group of men had come to Corinth who presented themselves as apostles. They were false teachers who were challenging, among other things, Paul's personal integrity and his authority as an apostle. In the face of this serious situation, Paul decided to make a quick trip to Corinth to see whether he could remedy the situation. The visit turned out to be painful and did not accomplish its purpose. So when Paul returned to Ephesus, he wrote the Corinthians a severe letter, the tearful letter, the sorrowful letter, the severe letter, out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, probably sending it by Titus. Some identify this letter with 2 Corinthians 10 through 13. Others think it has been lost. That's a different issue. We're not going to worry about that right now. After writing the severe letter, Paul had second thoughts. He was deeply concerned how the Corinthians might react to it. So after the riot caused by Demetrius and his fellow silversmiths, that's in Acts 19, he left Ephesus and set out for Macedonia by way of Troas. He expected to meet Titus and Troas to get news of the effect of his severe letter on the Corinthian church. But Titus was not there. Still deeply concerned, and despite the fact that the Lord had opened up an opportunity to preach the gospel at Troas, Paul said goodbye to the believers there and moved on to Macedonia, where he met Titus. To his relief, the news from the Corinthian church was basically good. The severe letter had brought its intended results. The encouraging report of Titus of the improved situation at Corinth is the immediate occasion of the writing of 2 Corinthians. So Paul gets the letter, gets the news back from Titus. He sits down and immediately writes a letter to the Corinthians. This is the latter part of AD 55. So I said I was going to ask two questions about these letters. How about the plans? How was the original plan changed? Second question, why was the original plan changed? Now, the interesting question here, a third question is, when was the original plan changed? Now, this is a little bit of my speculation here. And my speculation arises because of a verse in 1 Corinthians Verse 16:5, where Paul says, I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, for I will be traveling through Macedonia. Now, that verse throws me off because it sounds like Paul has already changed his mind about going straight to the Corinthians. Remember, his original plan was to go straight to Corinth over the Aegean Sea. In 1 Corinthians 16:5, he said, I'm going to go pass through Macedonia, and then I'm going to come to you. Well, the simplest way to handle that is to say that Paul is talking about the second part of the original journey. Remember the original plan. The original plan was to leave from Ephesus, then go to Corinth, then go up to Macedonia, collect some money, and come back to Corinth. And so if you are talking about the second phase of that plan to go to Macedonia and come back to Corinth, well, that fits perfectly with 1 Corinthians 16, 5. I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia. In other words, I've already come to you once. I'm going to go to Macedonia. I'm going to come back to you the second time. That's the easiest way to handle that verse. And then you would assume that Paul changed his mind about going straight over to Corinth according to his original plan when he got the bad news that the Corinthians did not answer his first Corinthians letter well. They didn't respond to it after he, and then of course he, after, well, he learned that on his painful visit. That's how he learned that he didn't, he, the Corinthians didn't respond to his painful visit. And so then that's when Paul changed his mind after the painful visit. He says, I'm not going to go straight over to Corinth for this, to collect money on this, to prepare for this 
journey to Jerusalem with the poor offering for the saints. I'm going to go to Macedonia first. That's the easiest way. Now, if you take it that in 1 Corinthians 16, 5 says, I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, and you take that as saying, well, Paul originally wanted to go through Corinth first, not after he went through Macedonia, but before he went through Macedonia. Well, then you've got his change of mind already happening there before he even wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, and therefore his change of mind would have had to have come because of the bad news he had gotten from Chloe's household and that letter the Corinthians had written, so he changed his mind. Now, what would this mean? This would mean that Paul had two changes of mind. First of all, his original plan was to go straight to Corinth, as I've said. He then changes his mind upon getting the letter back from Corinth and from the people in Chloe's household. He says, I'm not going to go visit them now. I'm going to go to Macedonia before I go on to Corinth, as we read in 1 Corinthians 16.5, where Paul says, I'm going to go to Macedonia first. But then he's planned to go to Macedonia first, and then he says, well, but you know, things are bad there in Corinth, so I better take the make the quick painful visit over there. So he changed his mind about going to Macedonia first. He goes to Corinth straight. I guess you'd call that a second change of mind. It's not really a change of mind as far as the Jerusalem poor visit. But anyway, all that's extremely complicated, and it doesn't matter it, how we solve that. What really matters is the fact that it's Paul. It's clear Paul is having to change his mind about his plans to visit the Corinthians. He's, he's having to modify his plans, and those Modifications are being used by Paul's enemies to attack him. All right, let's finish up this verse, these verses 15 through 16. This is Paul's original plan. He said, I planned with this confidence to come to you first, leave from Ephesus, and next go to Corinth, and then to go on to Macedonia, from Corinth to Macedonia, and then come back again from Macedonia to Corinth. That's what I've been calling the original plan. Now, this original plan would have a double benefit, Paul says. Now, there's some options and speculations as to what that double benefit might be. Well, the simplest answer, the NIV Study Bible, John Gill and Jameson Fawcett Brown suggest, is that it would be the benefit of two quick trips. Remember, the original plan was go from Ephesus to Corinth. First benefit, you get to see me, Paul. Then Paul goes from Corinth to Macedonia. He plans, and then he plans to come from Macedonia back the second time. Second benefit, that's the easiest way to explain that double benefit. Notice how Paul is not so humble that he thinks that his visit to Corinth will not result in a benefit to Corinthians. He thinks that he is, he's confident enough in his ministry to think that he's able to benefit the Corinthians. He was humble, but he was also confident. Here's some other speculations about what that double benefit mean. This is Adam Clark's speculation. He could refer to the original founding visit in Acts 18 when Paul started the church at Corinth. That's benefit number one. And then his originally planned trip to go to Corinth, which included two quick trips, to Corinth, to Macedonia, back to Corinth again. And that's the second benefit, the, the, the trips to Corinth. So the first, trip, the first benefit would be the original founding of Corinth, and the second benefit would be those two quick trips in the original plan. That's reasonable. I don't think it's right, but it's reasonable. John Gill speculates the two benefits could be his previous letter to them. He mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, where Paul says, I wrote to you not to commit sexual immorality and so forth. And then... This originally, that's benefit number one. Benefit number two, the double benefit, is his originally planned personal visit, as we read in this 1 Corinthians 15 and 16. That's reasonable, too, I think. I don't think it's right. John Gill also speculates the double benefit might be their conversion to Christ as he led them to salvation, and the second benefit is their edification and growth. That's reasonable, too, but I don't think that's what it is. I think it means he's talking about his two quick trips to Corinth. Over from Ephesus, up to Macedonia, and back from Macedonia again. That was the original plan. didn't happen because... 
The Corinthians didn't fly right, and Paul decided that painful visit that he had was enough to make him change his plans and go on to Troas first before going over to Corinth. We now go to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17. So when I planned this, this original trip, Ephesus, Corinth, Macedonia, Corinth, then to Rome, uh, then to uh, Jerusalem, and then to Rome. So when I planned this original trip, was I irresponsible? Well, of course he wasn't. Rhetorical question, no is expected for the answer. Or what I plan, do I plan in a purely human way so that I say yes, yes, and no, no simultaneously? In other words, am I a two-faced hypocrite saying I'm going to come to you, but I never plan to come to you? I plan to go straight up to Troas first, then go to Macedonia before I came to see you. I never intended to come see you in Corinth. Now, Paul knows that's an absurd thought that people would think that. So he is being a little sarcastic here. Paul's critics in Corinth were trying to say Paul was fickle and unreliable, which was a silly charge. Paul hadn't changed his plans to come to Corinth. He just modified them. He was still coming to Corinth. He just wasn't going to go over the Aegean Sea first. He was going to go by the land route, up north through Troas, then over the Hellespont, over through Thrace, down into Macedonia. It's going to take a little bit longer, but still the plans are the same. He's going to visit the Corinthians. And besides that, Paul had originally told them that his plans in 1 Corinthians 4.19, he says, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. He didn't promise to come to him soon. He said, if I can, if God wills it. And apparently God's not willing it because of you, Corinthians, irresponsible activities. In the Holman Christian Study Bible, Paul says, when I planned this, was I irresponsible? The NIV has, did I do it lightly? Kind of a little different flavor. Kind of in those two translations, First Corinthians, Second Corinthians one, Second Corinthians chapter one, verse eighteen. Paul continues, "As God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no." He's contrasting God between an alleged hypocrite, two-faced tergiversator who says yes and no at the same time, who says I'm coming to Corinth, but then he goes to Macedonia instead. As God is faithful, and Paul's implication is, I'm faithful too. Our message to you is not yes or no. Our message to you is very clear. We're coming to see you, Corinthians. Well, the message to you is not yes or no. That message could be Paul's plans, original plans to come to Corinth. It also could be the gospel message that Paul had previously preached to them, as the NIV Study Bible says. There was no ambiguity in that gospel message that Paul had previously preached to the Corinthians, and they knew it. Paul's purposes had changed, but his doctrine never changed. His purpose to, to go directly to Corinth had changed, but his doctrine of the truth in Jesus had not changed. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 19, Paul continues, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, a final yes has come in him. So Paul is contrasting the his alleged inconstancy and, and equivocation in coming to Corinth as alleged by his critics, he's contrasting that with the message that he preached, was, which was not shilly-shallying and wavering and unclear. His message about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was, yes, this is it. Bing, no ifs, ands, and buts about it. You're, and you're now trying to say that I, Paul, am a wussy puss? No, Jesus was a final yes. Paul's message was not wussy-pussy like a pre-Trump Republican presidential candidate. <laughs> you know, well, yeah, I believe this, I believe that, I believe this, I believe that. No, Paul didn't teach like that. And notice that Paul is humble enough to include Silvanus, that's Silas, and Timothy, who were with him on that second journey. When they came to Corinth and established the church, he included them with as, as co-preachers there 
of the Word of God. Paul is confident, but he is not arrogant. We go now to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore the amen is also spoken through him by us for God's glory. In other words, so be it. That's what amen means. So be it. That's not shilly-shang, yes or no, maybe, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I'm going to come, but maybe I won't. No. It's very clear. It's so be it. That's the way it is. Jesus is the way it is. The amen there shows that the amen is not a cultural, not a church traditional thing that's sprung up after the gospel. It was actually done during the New Testament church, actually used during the New Testament church. The amen was uttered by the congregation that at the end of an offering of prayer or praise. For example, in 1 Corinthians 14:16. Otherwise, if you praise with the Spirit, that means praise in tongues, how will the uninformed person say amen at your giving of thanks? Which shows that it was the custom to listen to a word in the native language and say amen. If you say it in tongues, you don't know when the end of the prayer is, so you won't be able to say amen. So that shows that amen was being used in the church in Revelation 3.14. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, Jesus tells John. Here's what the angel is to write to that angel of the church in Laodicea. The amen, the faithful and true witness, the so be it, the one who is, full stop, end of story, the true witness, the originator of God's creation. All right, so that's what amen means. It means this is certainly so. No ifs, ands, and buts about it. And of course, Paul's saying that because he's trying to say, hey, I'm not an equivocator. I'm not a vacillator. For every one of God's promises is yes in him in in God, and of course, all those promises were laid out by Paul to the Corinthians, and all of which New Corinthians have suggested are true. So why do you entertain suggestions that I am not constant in what I tell you, as Adam Clark puts, puts it in Paul's words? Going on now to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. Now, it is God who strengthens us with you in Christ and has anointed us. He has also sealed us and given us the Spirit as a down payment in our hearts. In those two short verses, you have the Trinity, God who strengthens us, Christ anoints us, and the Spirit gives us a down payment. Three persons of the Trinity. This is one more of those many Trinitarian passages which convinced the early church to get past their semi-Aryan ways, like in the time of Tertullian, by the time we get to the Council of Nicaea, they had looked at all these verses and they figured out, yeah, the Trinity's in the Bible, we can't deny that. Now, what does it mean? Well, first of all, Christ has anointed us. Anoint means to pour oil over somebody's head, and that's the common classic symbol for the Holy Spirit. Jesus anointed us with the Holy Spirit. He poured the Holy Spirit on us, if you will. After Pentecost, God gives us strength, and the Spirit is a down payment in our hearts. A down payment means the full payment's coming later. Well, what's the down payment? The down payment secures and guarantees a future payment in full which means that the Holy Spirit in our hearts is just the beginning. So what's the down payment? What's the full payment? The down payment is the Holy Spirit. The full payment will be our progressive sanctification and our glorification. Eventually, we're going to be raised from the dead and have a glorified body, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. This Holy Spirit is said to be in our hearts. That's where he lives, in our hearts, in the in, in, internal, incorporeal part of our human nature. That's where he lives. His spirit mingles with our spirit, if you want to put it that way. His spirit has made our spirit born again. He has sealed us, as Paul also says in Ephesians 1. He has sealed us. Seal means a seal. is When you put a seal on something, that says, that's mine. That's mine. So when the Holy Spirit puts a seal on us, the Holy Spirit saying, Dan Trotter is mine. Dan Trotter belongs to the Holy Spirit. Dan Trotter ain't going nowhere. A seal would be like 
a sig- the result of what a signet ring does when it is pressed into wax. Here's a passage from Haggai, chapter 2, verse 23. On that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, my servant. He, of course, was the Jewish governor of the Persian province of Ju- Judah after the return from the exile of that started in 586 B.C., I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Sheatel, this is the Lord's declaration, and make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. So the idea is, is the signet ring symbolizes ownership because God has chosen him. And so God kind of takes his signet ring and mashes it against our fords and said, you're mine, you ain't going nowhere. We go now to to Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 through 24. Paul says this, I call on God as a witness on my life that it was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. (laughs) He's already had one painful visit and decides I'm not going to have another one, so I'm going to go up through Macedonia and not go straight over to Corinth. And the reason I did that was to spare you because I was going to have to let you have it. Paul was not shy about sin. When it's sin in the church, he let him hold it and he didn't want to have a painful confrontation. Let me just stop at verse 23 here. I call on God as a witness. He's making a solemn oath before God. An oath. That's how strongly he wants to make his point that he had good reasons for not coming to see the Corinthians. That he was not trying to be a political shilly-shallying hypocrite. He's swearing by God. And this is how Adam Clark puts it. Quote, a mere solemn and more awful form of an oath was never presented nor taken by man than this. No kissing of the book, holding up of the hand, nor laying hand on the Bible can add either solemnity or weight to such an oath. It is as awful and as binding as anything can be, and him who would break this, no obligation can bind. I love that 19th century prolix rhetoric, but that's a serious thing Paul's doing. He's swearing by God that he had good reason not to come see the Corinthians. This shows how upset he was. Verse 14, 24, Paul says, I do not mean that we have control of your faith. In other words, I wanted to spare you, and I don't mean by when I say that I came, I would, if I had come, I would not spare you. That does not mean to imply that I have control over your faith to tell you what to do. I do not mean that we have control of your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy because you stand by faith. So Paul, immediately after he gives his his authority, hey, I I, I could come to... Corinth and cause you a bunch of grief, which you would not be spared. But on the other hand, hey, don't think that I'm trying to control you. Now, this is a fine line that Paul walks. He walks it through Second Corinthians a good bit, as he's trying to assert his moral authority as an apostle. But he has no, shall we say, legal, legitimate, uh, status, ecclesiastical, positional authority. He only has moral authority as an apostle. I say that because, you know, Catholics and Episcopals all talk about the apostolic succession and who can tell who what to do and we got to submit to the church and all this nonsense. No, Paul didn't say that. He says, I don't have no control of your faith. And if he says that, what do we say about those who follow in the apostolic succession all the way down to the current Pope Francis? Do they have control of our faith? When Paul the Apostle, one of the original apostles, didn't have control of our faith, even Peter, the original Pope, said, follow me. As he sets his example, that's in First uh, Peter five. He says he's uh, be examples to the flock. That's the first pope saying that examples. That's moral authority. That's not positional authority in an ecclesiastical hierarchy. 
On the contrary, Paul says, we are workers with you, not over you, but with you. That reminds me of the Chinese term, co-workers. They love that term because they're not going to pull rank. That's a very hierarchical society over there. Their culture is deep, 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 deep into hierarchy, but they don't do that with their workers. They say, we are co-workers. And, of course, co-workers for what purpose? For their joy, because when you work together, you bring joy to people that you're working with, because you stand by faith. It's not because you believe in me, it's because you stand by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, some people might say, yeah, but Paul did have control over the faith. What about when he when he kicked out the man living with his stepmother? Paul didn't kick that man out living with his stepmother. I was under that misimpression for years, till I read the verse carefully, 1 Corinthians 5, 4-5, when you, that's capital Y, capital O, capital U, you, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, turn that one over to Satan. Who turns the sexually immoral man over to Satan? You do. You Corinthians do. Now, Paul's there in the spirit. He's, he's agreeing with them, but they, he's not the one doing it. The Corinthian church assembled as according to the rules of church discipline, Matthew 16, 17, and 18, they're the ones that kicked out, or maybe it's Matthew 16 and 18, I'm sorry. They are the ones that kick out the sinful man, not Paul. So Paul said, at one time I come came to you as a nursing mother. Oh, that's a real picture of domineering authority, is it not? A nursing mother. Now remember, Paul did not come to Corinth because of the of their sin, but he did send Titus at some point, perhaps from Ephesus. I, I'm pretty sure it was from Ephesus. He was waiting for Titus to come back. That's why he went to Troas. He figured Titus would show up at Troas. He didn't. They didn't have cell phones back then. Ladies and gentlemen, I am now finished with First Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 1. We will, in our next audio, take up chapter 2. In that audio, we will discuss the first 11 verses of chapter 2 in which Paul discusses the successful church discipline done on that unfortunate man who was living with his stepmother mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5. I hope you... Listen to that audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.